How are you? Back with you on Off the Hook Radio. It's DJ Buddha Blaze. You know, electric powwow is going on tonight. That's right, a tribe called Red. Are you going to check them out? Give me a call. Let me know. Let's get into the latest from Nation to Nation. This is Sisters. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Global Storytime Podcast, where every two weeks I bring you a folktale from a different country or culture. And every two weeks, or you know, maybe three weeks, I also release an episode that helps us learn about the country or culture from where that story was written. I'm your host, Diane Strand. This week, we're going to Canada specifically to the communities of the Inuit and the Koyukon Athabascan tribes. The stories came out about a week ago, but I'm finally here with some quick information about these cultures. And as a recap, if you've forgotten or you haven't yet listened to the episode with the two different stories that I told, number one, a blind boy and the loon, which came from the Inuit, and the second story, how Raven brought back the sun from the Koyukon. Okay, let's begin. I'm first going to give you the lowdown on the Inuit, and then we'll learn about the Koh Yukon. So let's first find the Inuit homeland on a map. I should mention that Inuit is the overall name for a number of different groups of people that share similar languages and culture, and some of these subgroups have different names. The Inuit live along the Arctic Circle in the countries of Canada, the United States, Greenland, And there's also a sizable population that has immigrated to Denmark from Greenland. In Canada, there are four main Inuit regions. The Nunatukavut people live in Labrador and the northeast part of the country. Another region is called Nunavik, which is in the northern third of Quebec. There is a rather new Canadian territory called Nunavut, which broke off from the Northwest Territories in 1999. And the largest Inuit region is called the Inovialuit Settlement Region, which is in the most northern part of the Northwest Territories. As I mentioned, the Inuit also live in small populations in the U.S., in the state of Alaska, and in Greenland, the Inuit make up 89% of the population. Okay, let's dive into a short history of the Inuit. The Inuit, according to anthropologists, are the direct descendants of the Thule people, and to a lesser extent, the Dorset people. The Thules originated from coastal Alaska in the year 200 BC, and then they moved east, eventually wiping out the Dorset people who had been living along the Arctic Ocean in Canada and settled between 1000 AD and 1600 AD. An oral history provided by the Thules claimed that the Dorset people were either giants or, as some other records say, they were dwarfs. Whatever the case, the Thules had an advantage of using dogs and sleds for transportation and had better weaponry. Archaeologists have found animal figures carved out of ivory from sperm whales dated to this period. And where do you find ivory in sperm whales? It's in their teeth! They are one of the 77 types of whales that have teeth instead of baleen. Who knew? Getting back to the Inuit, over hundreds of years, the populations grew and fell in relation to changes in climate and in territorial disputes with neighboring tribes who lived further south. The first contact with the Europeans came in 1000 AD, when the Norse, from Norway, led by Eric the Red, 
built settlements in present-day Newfoundland. The Norse settlements lasted maybe 500 years. The exact timeline is a little hazy, as is the reason why the Norse eventually abandoned the settlements and chose not to expand their territory any farther. In the late 1500s, the English and French had started coming over and exploring, looking for a northwest passage, so a waterway that would take them from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. One of the expeditions was led by Englishman Martin Frobisher, who had part of his crew disembark the ship on Resolution Island, presumably to kind of figure out what's on that island. According to what became Inuit lore, these men were later seen trying to leave the island on a small canoe and were never seen again. European trading posts established on the Hudson Bay in the early 1800s were really damaging to the Inuit that lived in the lower latitudes, as new diseases that they were not immune to, like smallpox, caused a lot of death. However, the Inuit who lived in the higher latitudes were undisturbed as the European explorers were not interested in settling in that area. The environment was a little too harsh for them. In 1867, Canada became an independent country free from British rule, though it still remains part of the British Commonwealth today. By 1920, all of the Inuit living in Canada had been contacted by traders, missionaries, and Canadian government officials. The Canadian government lumped the Inuit in along with all the other native tribes in the country and put restrictions on traditional practices while systematically working to convert the natives to Christianity. In the 1950s, during the Cold War, the Canadian government wanted to secure their hold on the Arctic region of the country, resulting in the forcible removing of Inuit families from the area with the promise that they would be able to return in two years. Unfortunately, that promise was not kept, and the Inuit were not allowed to move back until 30 years later. In the 1960s, the Canadian government funded schools and hospitals in Inuit communities, and the Inuit finally started to gain some political power, eventually leading a few Inuit political leaders in gaining positions in the cabinet in the federal government in the 1990s. Let's shift gears and talk about the Inuit language which is currently spoken by about 50,000 people. There are five different dialects spoken in Canada and six different scripts or alphabets used to write them. Some of these alphabets are similar to the alphabets of other indigenous tribes in the area. Another alphabet is a Latin-based alphabet like English. And then there is yet another alphabet similar to the German alphabet that was brought over by missionaries. There is a common myth that the Inuit have something like 50 words for snow, but really they only have four root words that mean snow, and then they might add other words to that root word to make compound words that might mean something like gently falling snow. So it's really like making a phrase out of compound words. And of course, there are some Inuit words that have made their way into English, like the word igloo, which actually just means house, and was used for a number of different types of buildings, not just those ice block domes that we all think of. The words kayak, parka, and anorak, which is a waterproof jacket, also come from the Inuit. For the last bit about the Inuit, let's talk about their culture. The Inuit traditionally have an animist view of the world, meaning that they believe every being, human and animal, has a spirit. 
They also believe in additional good and bad spirits that control things like the sun and the moon, the ocean, fertility, and specific animals like caribou and polar bears. You may have heard the word Nanook before. That is the spirit that watches over the polar bears, which is possibly my favorite bear. Those Christmas co-commercials really got to me. Speaking of animals, the traditional Inuit diet consists of lots of seal meat, fish, birds, and eggs. It is a diet that the Inuit have genetically adapted to over millennia, and despite the absence of fruits and vegetables, the Inuit were in great health and used to have very low rates of cardiovascular disease and other ailments. Of course, now processed food has made their way into the communities and has been messing with their health, as it does for all of us. But after the hunters processed all of this meat that they ate, what would they do with the hides, the fur, the feathers, and all of that other stuff? Oh, I don't know. They would just make the most complicated and sophisticated clothing garments just about ever. We know how harsh the climate is in the Arctic. During the polar night, when it is dark 24-7 for weeks, the temperature can routinely fall to 40 below zero. This means that the Inuit had to not only make extremely warm clothes, but they also had to be waterproof, moisture wicking so your sweat doesn't freeze, functional and incredibly durable because the materials for their clothes are hard to come by. They tended to dress in loose layers to capture heat between the layers and added a lot of seams to make the garments tough. And each piece of clothing was made to fit and fit perfectly exactly one person. I am obsessed with Project Runway and I think the Inuit would master any challenge that Heidi could throw at them. And of course I also have to mention the Inuit housing. We are all familiar with the dome-shaped igloo that the Inuit are famous for. They are made out of rectangular blocks of snow, cut out of snowdrifts with a very special snow knife, and then they're stacked together in a circular dome, and they leave a hole open at the top for ventilation. Typically, one igloo would house one family, and they would build vaults into that tunneled entrance to store food, and they would insert a sheet of ice or the stretched intestine of a seal into the wall to make a window. But they didn't live in these snow houses all year round. In the summer, they lived in tents made of seal skin. One last thing about the Inuit that I found really interesting is that their number system is a base 20 system. Well, we in the US and throughout the Western world tend to use a base 10 system. That means when we think about a number like let's say 24, we think of two groups of 10 plus four more. In the Inuit number system, 24 would mean two groups of 20 plus four. I recently took a math class where we learned about other base systems used in history and around the world, and I learned that another group that used the base 20 system was the Mayans in Mexico. That stuff is so fascinating to me. Okay, that's enough about the Inuit. Now let's move on over to the Koyukon Athabascan. First, I should clarify that Athabascan is kind of like the Inuit. It is a name of a group of tribes that live throughout the Northwest Territories, in Canada, and in many U.S. states. The Koyukon specifically live near the Koyukuk River that runs through Alaska and the Yukon River that runs through Canada's Yukon Territory in British Columbia. The history that I found about the Koyukon was rather brief. There was not a ton written about them, certainly not compared to the Inuit that has a lot written about them. 
But archaeologists have found evidence that the modern Koyukon have been inhabiting the region for at least 1,000 years with cultural roots that stretch back thousands of years. Pre and for a while post contact with Europeans, the Koyukon had established homes in different areas that they lived in according to the seasons and the migration of the animals that they hunted. And this included 12 well-established camps along the Yukon River that were used in the summer during the salmon runs. They were known to have friendly relationships with the other tribes that bordered the area. The first contact with Europeans was with the Russians who had sent explorers up the Yukon River in the 1800s to set up trading camps. The Russians reported that apparently the Koyukon already had glass beads, tobacco, and iron pots that they had likely obtained by trading with the Inuit, who, as we've just learned, had already been in contact and traded with the Europeans. After the Russians came, there was a breakout of smallpox, because of course there was, and the Koyukon population suffered a lot of deaths. But then they lived in relative isolation, That is, until the 1800s when the Klondike Gold Rush brought in a ton of Americans and Canadian prospectors. Of course, the native population was already aware that there was a ton of gold there, but they didn't really care about that metal. Instead, they were more focused on mining and trading copper, which there was also a lot of. Over the next few decades, schools were built in the area, mainly by Catholic missionaries. This next bit is unrelated to the Koyukon and is really horrifying, so you've been warned. I don't know if you've heard, but there was recently found a mass of unmarked graves of 215 children that were found near Catholic missionary schools in British Columbia. The bodies are believed to be the children taken from Native tribes with the promise of education while, of course, simultaneously trying to eradicate their culture. But instead, they were murdered. I'm sorry for the depressing aside, but I think it is important for us to think about the motive and realities behind these schools. Okay, let's move on. Moving into the present, the Koyukon mostly still live in their ancestral homeland near the Koyukuk and Yukon rivers. Though in the last 20 years, those rivers have seen increasing flooding that is devastating communities. I'm not really sure if there are efforts to mitigate these floods or if the communities will eventually have to relocate to a new area. Man, that was a bummer too. Okay, let's move on to languages. Maybe that's a little happier. The language of the Koyukon is also called Dinake and is currently spoken by about 2,300 people. There are three regional dialects of the language. The language was traditionally only spoken, but not written. In the 1890s, a French-Canadian Jesuit missionary named Jules Jetty lived at the Koyukon for years, documenting their customs and ways of life and became fluent in Danake and eventually helped them create an alphabet so that their language could be written, in addition to being spoken. So not all missionaries are bad. Jules sounds like a pretty stand-up guy. An interesting fact about Denake is that it is related to the Navajo language, spoken in the American Southwest. That is because they are both a part of the Athabascan language group and share vocabulary and grammatical structure. The Athabascan language group originated in Northwest Canada and slowly, over hundreds and hundreds of years, spread south as groups of people migrated and formed new tribes. How cool is that? And now for a short overview of the Koyukon culture. So I've already told you where they live, 
over by the Koyukuk and Yukon rivers, and it is here that they built permanent settlements. They built rectangular houses that were much bigger than they looked. That is because most of their house was underground, meaning that they would dig out the ground and then they would add short log walls above ground and then add a thatch roof. Being underground provided some insulation, especially during the warmer months. And it was probably easier to dig out the ground instead of finding and processing a ton of trees. The Koyukon, being on the rivers, had plenty of access to salmon runs, and they would also hunt caribou and moose and forage for plants and berries. Their religion was animist, like the Inuit and so many other religions in the world, so they believed that each animal had its own spirit, as did the wind and the sun and the water. They also believed that way back in the before time, all beings were human, and only after some time, some of these humans started to turn into animals. Because they believe in this common ancestry, they have the utmost respect for animals and have several ways of honoring their spirits when they are hunted. The Koyukon have a reputation of being very friendly and hospitable, which I mentioned, and they are also known for their basket weaving, singing, dancing, and of course, storytelling. And that's it. This concludes the episode of Let's Learn About the Inuit and the Koyukon Athabascan. I did mention this episode's corresponding folktale episode at the top of the show, and it's episode 21, A Blind Boy and the Loon, and How Raven Brought Back the Sun. They are both great stories about brilliant birds who help humans in need. If you liked this or any other episode that I have done, you might want to follow the podcast on Facebook or Instagram at Global Storytime Podcast. You can always share your thoughts, critiques, what have you at globalstorytimepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, I would appreciate a review of any kind on Apple Podcasts, but I would prefer a nice one. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Diane Strand. Next time, we're going to Saudi Arabia. Until then, bye!